So it's Nano. It is Nano. Nano Rimo. Um, <laughs> I, I I pulled the room today on Twitter about Nano Rimo. Mm-hmm. Um, just asking folks, you know, how it's going. Whether, I'm guessing the answer is not well. Whether they're feeling good about the whole thing. Um, I do see the thing with Nano is that it is. You know, we did a whole show on it, but like it's designed. Fifty thousand words in one month. It's designed to not go well. Yeah. Which is not actually an indictment of the program itself, right? Like, it's um, it's just you're supposed to write a ton in a short period of time. And so, like, a lot of people can't or don't do that, you know? And yeah. 50,000 words in 30 like, days. But the responses I was getting today were like, well, well, today I have to, like, you know, perform some basic responsibility in my life. And Nano is making me feel ashamed about that. It's like... That's this, what it should do. This is a healthy month for, <laughs> for everyone involved. We're all having a great time. Uh, as for me, I have been one week away from finishing my book for now three weeks now. Sounds um, about right. Yeah, it's really good. I, I literally am at the point where it's like if I could just like produce the next 1,000 words, it would go very quickly after mm. that. And I just – just not doing it. Just can't sit down, get you it done. You should do nano for a day. <laughs> like pick a day and be like this is my nano day. Nano Rye Day. Nano Rye Day. <laughs> National Novel Writing Day. <laughs> yeah, I do need that. Uh, but yeah. I am almost done. Well, um, you should finish because we need to turn our attention to Decembo. I know. Oh, I'm I'm ready. I'm going to even buy. For new listeners, let's tell them about Decembo. <laughs> well, so here's what I'll say about Decembo right now. And I'm not going to give the whole spiel because, frankly, it doesn't hit, deserve it. It'll hit you so good, you don't need the spiel. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that is going to happen, this is how seriously I take December. I'm going to buy a new computer mouse for December. And that is to say that for the last year now, um, my computer has been out of commission in that I can't click and drag. Like the trackbar doesn't press down. You can't down. do screenshots. So I can't screenshot. I can't manipulate things i can't do photoshop or anything now this was a problem that theoretically would take like five minutes to fix if i just went to my local computer store but obviously i didn't do that no because it's better for me to get a slack message being like hey laura can you give me a screenshot of that or can (laughs) you you send it to me (laughs) sometimes i do send you things and you should actually know laura that i intentionally don't like lots of times i'm about to send you other requests where where i'm like hey can you quick like put the loon head on this like image of a 1950s politician on a soapbox and i just don't because you should. I, because i respect boundaries our people are missing out <laughs> on their content because of your and so, trackpad but we will soon Question. be back in the meme making business um i will put jonathan franzen's face on all of your favorite holiday characters um <laughs> it will be a good time had by all and we're all going to just get through it together for those that don't know yeah. um Decembo is mostly a joke um, but for you, for you, for, it's a joke. For me, it's a joke. For me, and it's for a way most of life. everybody, except for except for Eric. So what it is <laughs> is it's it's a funny response to the stress and the shame that is the National Novel Writing Month. Nano. It's Rhymo. different stress and different shame. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of life. So is. the whole idea is that, like we always talk about as agents, like you always get a few like queries in December. Where they were like, I wrote this for Nano, like, read it, it's great. And it's never great because the book hasn't been edited. And so what we do is we create a lot of weird Twitter memes that are Jonathan Franzen and Loon themed with holiday, like, tips and also editing tips for you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and what's really fun about it is that the... um December, we got like a website, like a shitty, like live journal web, so we can just post the. It didn't. It wasn't them. a dot com. No, was it? it was like a dot org. It's dot org. <laughs> it's December dot org because dot com was that like classic, really expensive. The classic organization. Yeah. So um, December is an official organization because, as my like third grade computer science teacher told me, you can't have a dot org unless it's an official organization, which we all know that is not true. Mm-hmm. But. I don't you know. know that that's true. Yeah. She also said uh, that, like, Wikipedia was a bad source to learn about anything ever, whereas, like, Wikipedia is a great place to go for rough information, and then you can click on the links that take you to the actual, like, studies and stuff. Uh, but the point is, yeah. folks, that 
We will be helping you edit your books come this December by means of ridiculous memes. mostly just making stupid pictures in Canva, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, if I told you how much time it took me each day to produce the daily thing, um, you wouldn't respect me. So <laughs> on that note, we are going to say welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. So um, we are... What? It's the middle of November. November 11th. It's cold as hell here now. It is. It's try- the highest 17 <laughs> degrees today. And it's November. I, I had that thought today. I was like, man, it's been a... I actually thought today, Laura, I was like, man, it has been a, it's been a long winter. Like, it's been cold. <laughs> it's November. I would um, like to mention to everybody in my public shame that I have not yet put away my outdoor furniture for either. the year. I haven't done that either, yeah. So that's what I'm doing yeah. later today. I actually just, like, yeah. brought the hammock in because it's got yeah. snow in it now, so I need it to, like, dry up before I put it away. I did absolutely no winterizing of any kind of my house, and yeah. I intend to reap the benefits of that for the rest of the season. We didn't and put our summer furniture away, but we did pay an electrician to come and put a plug in our front porch so that we can have Christmas lights. The hose is still stuck on the faucet. Oh, no. Outside for me. It actually, it has been for two years now. I didn't get it off last winter either. And I'm pretty sure it's corroded on there. And well, so as long, honestly, as long as you just turn the water off, you'll be fine. Actually, here's here's the thing. Um, for I know there's some lawn care listeners to this show because there was a while where we Scott's were really turf building <laughs> we're like as a bit we were talking about scott's turf builder all the time we just bought houses um, within two months of each other that was so better, it makes sense that was yeah. a better version of this show <laughs> I, I maintain um but that that weird sound you just heard was laura cackling into her wine glass if you're wondering um, how this is going <laughs> so far but if you're someone who knows how to get a frozen a hose off a spigot outside. I'd love to hear from you. Please ooh, ooh, add ooh, me. Ooh, I know. So here's what you do. Oh, God. So you remember. Of course you, of course you know. You've always got like some stupid solution to every damn problem yeah. I have. I hate it. You're welcome. So here's what you do. Mm-hmm. You plug in that water heater that I left at your house. I'm not doing that. I'm bringing that back to you. Yeah. So the, so the, the hot water heater that boils water in 90 seconds, mm-hmm. you fill it to the top with yep. hot water. Yep. And then you pour it over the spigot so that it melts the same way that you would do without boiling water if you like you got your tongue stuck on a pole. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. I would actually prefer my tongue being stuck to a pole to this current <laughs> problem because it's like, yeah, it's no good. It's feel, it makes me feel very stupid, um, which is probably a me problem more than like a house problem. But, yeah, probably. Um, anyway, folks, we're going to talk about um, a... There's a, there was a Publishers Weekly article last week that got everybody talking about whether or not publishing is too top-heavy. And um, spoiler alert, we think the article's got some problems. Um, we think the general discussion has some problems, and we're going to get into that. Um, before we do any of that, though, Laura, please rescue this lengthy beginning by giving us the rundown. <laughs> well, as you, uh, you've you heard, it's November 11th. <clears throat> it is full winter here, but we are both resisting. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> beginning of November means that we will have we have three special episodes to get to you this month. We've got our query show, as usual, and our first pages critique show. So if you want us to critique your work, send them to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And these are available. The query show is available for just $3 a month on Patreon. And we've got like tons and tons and tons of content on there already. The query show and our third special episode are available for $8 a month in addition to you know what you get from the query show. We don't yet have a topic for this month's special episode. So if you have something really, really particular, what do you want you to hear us talk about? about? Send it to us. Yeah. Like honestly, if you just want like a quick pre-holiday roundup of a bunch of like random etiquette questions for querying or submissions, send them to us. Do you want me to perform limericks? Don't do no, no. <laughs> nobody request that, please. I mean, honestly, if you say. Hey guys, we're gonna send you twenty five bucks. Just do readings of Jonathan Franzen sex scenes. If you send me twenty five bucks, I'll do. I'll debase myself on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so send them to us. Printrunpodcast at gmail Head on over to Patreon, and if you're going like, what is all of this debasement on this on this crowdfunding platform? Well, go over and find out. It's, it's called the gig economy, folks. Read a book. <laughs> um, so, Laura, yes. um, we didn't record last week, and so this episode, or this topic, is, I guess, a week old, but it's actually not a week old, in that this is the sort of why, I think the reason 
that this Publishers Weekly article, which is titled, Is Publishing to- uh, Too Top Heavy? And then the little, sub- the little subheader here is, As mega bestsellers command more of a publisher's marketing budgets and retailers' shelf space, breaking out the next crop of hit makers has become a challenge. Um, so I guess in a sense we're late to this conversation by a week because this article published on November 1st, but we are not late to this conversation in that this feels to me like a version of everything that like vexes publishing in mm-hmm. like the modern era. Like honestly, I needed ten days just to like stop seeing red <laughs> from, from well, this it's article. Like, it's versions of this question, like why is there no you know, I mean you hear why it is in there different no mid list? Right. Why is there no mid list? Why are advances down? Why is publishing only like why do publishers only, you know, want to work with authors who are like these no-brainer celeb authors, like why is all resources going there? Like, wh- why is this stratification happening, mm-hmm. right? Um, you see this version of this question in lots of different ways. And this article attempts to address it. And it's just, I think that what frustrated lots of people about this, what frustrated it, um, what frustrated me about this article, and really, I mean, it's not even necessarily about this article because. It, I think that this line of thinking that we're seeing on present here, which is basically just like, you know, oh, if things are, you know, you can't really take risks. You have to, you know, publish what you know. You know, the mid list is disappearing. Like, you know, we have to. It's feast or famine. It's Yeah, exactly. This feast or famine thing. Like, the line of logic, and really, like, even calling it a line of logic is a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a misnomer because, it feels to me like the complete absence of logic because it's the sort of problem that no one really wants to actually engage with in the sense that, one, at least for me, no one wants to name any villains. In this line of thinking, oh, the mid-list is disappearing and we've just got to respond to that. Like, no one ever wants to say, okay, well, why? Why is the mid-list disappearing? Why is it that, like, because the phenomenon that we're seeing here is true, right? Like, the, the mid-list is like, going away, It yes. is, like, this article premises itself on an idea that actually is happening. It's just that their discussion about, like, there is, it is true that, like, debut novels are getting very little. Giant bestsellers and everything like that are getting, like, publishing is becoming safer. Publishing is becoming stratified. You're not seeing as much middle-of-the-road books. And I say middle-of-the-road here, like, one thing about saying mid-list and middle-of-the-road and, like, I mean that very glowingly. You know what I mean? Like, I think I really think highly of what would get called a mid-list book. Just like something I love that, a mid-list no, book. Ev- and everyone should. Like, we actually honestly should come up with a better term than mid-list because it sounds middling. You know what I mean? As opposed to something that's like a really solid seller yeah. for, you know, a specific audience. It's not a bestseller. It's, it's not list It's flashy the person book. you marry versus the person you date for two <laughs> minutes because he rides a motorcycle. It's St. Paul instead of Minneapolis. Yes. Um, that's the nicest thing I've ever said about St. Paul. That is. Um, and I, I'm going to take it and go to the bank but, with that. <laughs> but um, the point is, like, we get in this discussion where there's no... In, a, in an article like this, like, no one's done anything wrong, right? Like, this is just a naturally occurring thing that's happened, according to a reading like this, where, you know, you have, you know, you have editors, you know, this, this article kind of goes on to quote a bunch of different publishing sources, a bunch of different book editors, a bunch of different people in the industry, and they all just sort of say, they all just sort of confirm the phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Like, they all just say, yep, we never use the word mid-list around here. That's it's not... It's bad. It's a bad it's word. It's not a thing that happens. We're just not seeing it anymore. And, like, my basic point, and this is where I want to bring you in, is like, to me, especially in relation to some of the conversations we've had on the show in the past, like, it feels like a complete abdication of responsibility yeah. in the sense that you're having people who all work in publishing, who all have controls over the levers of who gets what money, saying, well, there's no mid-list anymore. We can't We can't, can't make spend it work. money. We can't have marketing dollars spent for this book whereas you know there's a really really big book of this year that or I guess that'll be out in the spring and a bookseller friend of ours told us that his store which has like just a few main employees got seven whole galleys so pre-release copies for samples at this tiny bookstore right okay so Yes, that and that is ridiculous, and it's ridiculous because of a, speci- a specific line of thinking that I think leads to it, which is like, 
like why would so let's unpack that for a second. Yeah. It's an interesting it's an interesting way to kind of get into the phenomenon we're talking about, which is why would a big publisher send seven galleys to one independent bookstore? And to me, the reason is that publishers have become so imprecise with the way they with the way they outreach their books, the way they market their books, all these things, like all they know how to do is take the giant books and just shove them, shove down them everywhere. And then they don't know how to do anything with the smaller ones. You know, you know what I'm saying though? It's like that, like what you're describing, like that is an output of a line of thinking that just says, just pour, like it means yeah. that they don't necessarily know where to send stuff. Yeah. You know what and I mean? And it's wasted like, money and it's wasted yeah. energy. And, yeah. you know, I'd like to go back for a second to, to talk about midlist like because as readers we should be looking for those books that are the midlist because if you are only reading the books that are shoved down your face right there you're missing that whole like sense of browsing and that sense of discovery Discovery, i love a midlist book because i can see this book that you know was nominated for some awards or did kind of good and you know was originally released in hardcover and then in paperback but and i find as a paperback and it's dope and I tell a couple mm-hmm. people about it and they don't know about it. And then I tell a couple more people about it and they loved it already. And like that to me is how like it allowing for that discovery to happen is how you get buzz. Right. And we've talked before on this podcast about how publishing is always seeking to create buzz. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, shoving seven books to a single indie bookstore located in St. Paul like that is. A, a misguided attempt to create buzz whereas if you have a very it's just so ham-fisted yes. you know because you could create the same amount of buzz just sending these people one book you know what I mean? yeah and one it just book. suggests that there, there's not no one's doing the research no one knows who's doing what like mm-hmm. it's just you just throw money at the big safe thing and you don't do anything anywhere else and so that is something that i compare with uh, a quote from this Publishers Weekly article, yeah. which, by the way, only one person is named and four people are quoted in this right, article. That's the th- that's the like, it's, it's like, like people don't no... want to talk about the yeah. mid-list with yeah. their names, but yeah. there's another Big Five editor, this is a direct quote, who honed her chops at smaller and mid-sized houses, offers a similar take. Midlist is absolutely not a term I ever use. I know it exists and is a thing, she said, before positing that publishing is essentially a business built on hope. You have to imagine that this book will make its way whether or not there's anything realistic about that, which to me is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so so. <laughs> so I, I agree with you. I, I want to add before we launch into this discussion about hope, which is where mm-hmm. we're going to take this, because that concept of publishing is a business based on hope. Um, it is as dumb as it sounds, and we will be talking about it. <laughs> um, but I want to add a few more um, quotes to, for, from this article. And again, like you're right, it is kind of weirdly anonymously sourced. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's – so <clears throat> how about this? You want to be debut, literary, or best-selling. You don't want to be mid-list, one literary agent said. The mid-list is like the middle class. It's the group that gets squeezed. They don't get the support from their publishers. They don't get their due as writers. They don't get their attention they deserve from reviewers. Everybody wants to break out of the mid-list. Editors concurred. Mid-list publish- and this is a quote again. Midlist pushes buttons because no one ever publishes a book intending it to be midlist. And this is a place. Absolutely not and true. And that is absolutely, absolutely like, not out true. Out of hand, not true. But <laughs> said one high level editor to Big Five House. Publishers live on the, and here's the word again publishers live on the hope that the next book they publish is going to break out. And like, so let's just, that word hope, Laura. Yeah. Let's talk about what happens when you are a giant business conglomerate. One and of you're the ma- top five you know, traditional <laughs> and publishers. And you are making your decisions and you're making, you're basing your whole business strategy and you've got millions of dollars to play with. And we see this because we do know that million dollar advantage, like lots of money in play here, but you're making all your decisions based on hope. So, what does that so mean? So <laughs> first of all, I would like to point out that that is absolutely not something that's actually happening, right? Which because thing? if because which thing isn't happening? So buying books based on hope. Because here's the thing. Yeah. Like you've been an acquisitions editor. Yeah. You know that they take you in those editorial meetings, in those acquisitions meetings. They have exhaustive PLs. There's exhaustive market research. There is There's, a lot of information. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. Is like in these acquisitions meetings, like speaking as someone who was in them for a while, like you have way like for all the discussion, like I think that a lot of our listeners, they come at publishing from 
the internet, right? Where it's like agents and editors tweeting about the, the you know, their manuscript wish list. It's very like, like qualitative, mm-hmm. right? When you get into an ed- an acquisitions meeting, there is information in play. Yeah. There actually is a lot of data. You're looking there at is, the Nielsen book yeah, scan. You're looking at projections. You've got very complicated models used to kind of determine how this stuff happens. And you're right. Like, and that determines <laughs> not only whether or not the book is bought, but it determines how much they can offer yeah, for it. Right, it determines right. how many books they're going to print. Right. It determines how much they can spend in the production of the book. Like there's And how much that there is for marketing. So like to say, first of all, that they acquire, that a publisher acquires all of their books in the hope that they'll become bestsellers is frankly bullshit. And I think I think that it's really important to focus on why that narrative still exists for okay. a very like prestigious un- but anonymous editor, right? And for multiple editors and multiple agents. Say more on that, yeah. And so I think I think that there's this idea that because we're given this narrative of hope for writers you know writers it's it's the dream and they hope and they and they work hard and they and they're just they hope and they hope and they hope that they will get the deal and so as as a way to abdicate responsibility editors and houses in general are able to grab on to that hope and that you know well i got gee golly i hope it's me and they're able to turn that into any any like example of why they're not successful or why something is happening in in publishing that goodness doesn't make any sense and there's 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 this bad faith decision making here mm-hmm. with with hope in terms of risk and responsibility yep. publishers are not the artists they're not hoping that the world is going to respond to their art in the best way they possible. They love to pretend they are when they it's love time to, to pretend make business they are. decisions. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> but it's the writer. So like, yeah. the hope comes yeah. in to publishing when a writer does everything they're supposed to do. They work mm-hmm. on their craft. They do yeah. their editing. They, they workshop their query yep. letter. Yep. They can hope that they're going to query that their agent that the agent that's going to be perfect for them is open for queries when they're ready to query they can hope that they'll get chosen by an individual like that's that individual to individual is where the hope comes in because that's very much like a chance or like a numbers game right when it comes to a publishing conglomerate yeah picking books and how much they're going to spend on those books that shit is not hope. That shit is risk. And if you look at any other company, even any other entertainment industry, they're ta- they're talking about it in terms of risk. Mm-hmm. And they know what shows are mid-list, what shows are primetime. They understand what that is. And the idea of publishing is saying, well, golly, we're just hoping that these things are going to break out. And if anything doesn't, it's not because of Amazon. It's not because they're not spending money on marketing. It's not because they're losing control of their of their technology. It's because, gosh, that hope didn't pan out. And so that dynamic actually is, it is really enraging because if you, so if a publisher told, if I didn't know anything about the publishing industry. Right. And a, someone who worked in a publishing house told me, they said, you know, we just publish books based on hope. We we do, you know, we try to just, you know, do things based on hope. We, you know, hope all our books become bestsellers. What that would suggest to me. They don't know what spe- they're doing. Well, it would suggest that. But what it would also maybe suggest in a more charitable reading is that they were taking risks. Mm. Right? Like if you're hoping, it means that you're, you're publishing a book that you're not sure it's going to work out. You know, you're publishing something that's maybe a little. You're not quite sure who the readership is, but you, you personally, you know, as the editor, as the salesperson, you feel strongly that this book needs to exist because you love it, and you'll just try to find the readership for it later. But you know that it should happen. Right. But like it, it suggests, in other words, that the publishing is risk. Like I think that risk and hope come together as a combo, right? When it comes to business, yeah. Right. Like you hope when you aren't sure, and you aren't sure when you take a risk, but. We also know that that isn't true at all. We because publishers, as we have said, how many? Well, this is episode one sixteen. Yep. On one hundred and fifteen episodes of Print Run, before now, we have pointed out that publishers are risk averse right now, and increasingly so. And increasingly so. And so, when people say, "Oh, we're both going based on hope," we're just living on a prayer out here, folks. Like, no, you're not. 
you're publishing known quantities. You're publishing celeb books. You're publishing like what I mean. I Andy saw today, Cohen got a uh, imprint this week. They gave John Bolton from the Trump administration two milli today <laughs> from Simon <laughs> Schuster. Like I don't, I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble about him. So we're going to keep moving. But um, <laughs> it's it's just one of those things where like you are not like. If you're gonna, if this is the line of logic that we're just publishing on hope, and somehow, even though we're doing all this stuff with like you know magic and fairy dust, the mid list keeps disappearing. Like, no, it's not. The reason it's happening is because you're letting it go away. It's because you're one editorially, you are letting it go away with safer and safer decisions. Two, it's happening because publishing itself is consolidating, right? Like you know, we talk a lot about you know we've seen imprints. Combine and shutter. Obviously, we've seen places like Penguin and Random House become one hat. Like consolidation is happening in publishing, mm-hmm. right? And they, it has to because of Amazon. Like these, like there are becoming less and less publishers, and they're becoming bigger, right? Yep. And that is a process that I think anyone with any sort of intuition can see is going to lead to less, less like risk taking, right? Because you're not as independent. Like you're, it's more. You have to just kind of be. This giant machine to keep mm-hmm. up with this other big machine. Like Everybody, every editor now has to like, like run all their decisions by business daddy <laughs> instead of to take a phrase from John Oliver um, rather than, yeah. you know, talking to their one visionary editorial director and mean. say, hey, yeah. I think that this could be really great. And their yeah. editorial director being like, you know what? Let's try it. Yeah, exactly. Like there's no and just like in general, it just gets back to this idea <clears throat> that. Publishers have no ability to decide what sells, right? Mm-hmm. Like I sent, I posted a thing the other day that kind of got people going, where I said like, publishers and this, and it came from line of logic that we've used on this show all the time, which is that when it comes time to make business decisions, publishers love to pretend they're only artists, and when it comes time to make art decisions, they love to pretend they're only businesses. Mm-hmm. Which is to say that they abdicate responsibility in both instances. Like, when it's time to publish something artsy and edgy and cool, the reason they don't do it is because, oh, well, we can't figure out how to sell it. We don't know what to do with it. And then the second it's time to make a strong, like, okay, well, then let's see you sell something. Let's see you sell anything. <laughs> if you're going to be bald with the business. It's, oh, well, we're just artists. We're just, trying, we're just living on a prayer. We're hoping. It's like, it doesn't work. It, it never works. And it, it just... It's very frustrating to see an article like this that, for me, doesn't point... Like, honestly, like, above all of this, I think any analysis that talks about, like, why is there no mid-list in publishing, it has to start with, like, the larger forces in play, right? Yeah. Like, the reason there's no mid-list in publishing is because publishing is consolidating rapidly. It's not the and, readers like this article tried to blame a little bit. It's never it's, the readers because publishing makes its readers. So that's yeah. the thing that it, that is actually right there. That is the basic truth. Like you could, you could not listen to a single other episode of this stupid podcast <laughs> and just take that. Please listen like, to other episodes of the stupid podcast and sign up for our Patreon. Uh, but <laughs> um, it's just. Publishing makes its readers. It has the ability to reach people. They're it taste, can, it's a tastemaker. Like, it is a ta- exactly. It's a tastemaker. And in articles like this, it paints itself. So, oh, we don't know what's happening. All of a sudden, these books aren't selling. The only thing we've got are giant bestsellers and literary debuts that are dead on arrival. And it just makes me crazy because you see it trickles down in terms of logic. Like it trickles down in terms of what you hear. I know what I hear from editors from certain on certain projects where it's like. My least favorite line, and I have talked to dozens and dozens of agents about this specific line that is just driving everyone nuts, which is, oh, I loved it. This is the line you get from the editor. I don't know how to break it out. (laughs) But I don't know how to break it out. I don't know how to sell it. And it's like, well, then what are any of us doing here? Like, if we can't publish books we love, then... And you're in, and you were given your job as an editor and as an agent and as any of us. Like we have jobs in publishing ostensibly because we have good taste. Like you get an editorial assistant job, you get an editor job based on your taste. You get it like based on your stated, like what you like and don't like plays a role. Mm-hmm. And for that suddenly to be something that doesn't matter at all in your decision making, it's just like. There is like a missing wire in here somewhere, and it's just very frustrating to watch play out. So let's 
close this conversation out by talking a little bit about what that means for agents working with writers because yeah. that's yeah. that's the 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 context that you and I both have but it's also something where you know this this PW article mentioned that an agent you know is is struggling with midlist and that there is no midlist and blah 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 right um I so we we both we have an agency together and yes, the agency specifically is centered around building sustainable careers for writers like that yeah. is our goal that is what if if we do our work that is what we're going to achieve for our writers right so my so I, I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like in the face of an asinine bunch of statements collection of statements it's not even like an opinion article right just like yeah. A collection of statements from, you know, big names who apparently don't want to give their names. Yes. Um, what that looks like. I've mm -hmm. pulled a lot of writers or I've started them in the mid list and have pulled them up and up and up and up and up. <clears throat> and to me, like that is really, really rewarding for my reader or like for readers of these these writers and also really, really lovely for writers because you know what you get when you're kind of a a mid-list author who is writing lots of books and selling lots of books, you get a steady paycheck. Yeah, yeah, you do. Do you know what happens when you are a, like, Iowa Writers Workshop grad and you get six-figure deal for your first book that doesn't necessarily slap yeah. in the way that you were promised? <laughs> it doesn't slap in the way that you were promised is my summary of the Iowa Writers <laughs> Workshop for the last, like, decade. <laughs> If you are at the Iowa Writers Workshop, I'm very proud of you. You're doing great. Um, Gold star. But do you know what happens mm -hmm. to most, you know, 99 out of 100 of those writers is that they get a big fat check mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the check. Yep. That's what they get. Yep. Because do you know what also happens when publishing is risk averse is if you don't earn out. And if you don't earn out by a whole hell of a lot, that publisher is going to go, you know, That's we're a business. <laughs> yeah. They're going to, exactly. yeah, you're, a, we're a business yeah. and this isn't great. Well, so, and that's like the point is like, we need a different term. Like, honestly, like instead of midlist, we should just say, we should just say steady seller. Mm -hmm. Like we should just talk about someone. Career who, author. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Like midlist. And, like, one thing that does, like, and this is not necessarily a publishing point, mm -hmm. but it certainly gets my hackles up when people in publishing are talking about things like the middle class because it's certainly, like, middle class is something you say when you don't really have a class analysis of society because it's not working or, like, anyway, um, it's not a real term. But it's the same thing here. Like, it's it just sort of suggests this view that, and like I don't even understand the analysis, right? It's like, you know, the middle, the mid list. Well, it gets squeezed from both ends. Okay, how? Explain. Like literally that quote. It, like break that out for me. How would that happen? Like how are the debut novels squeezing on it? How are the above? It doesn't make any sense. It's just that we are just conditioned to believe that this culture of extremity in terms of who gets published and how is the norm, and there should never be any sort of author who is able to reach their readers in a profitable way and it's without, also yeah worth mentioning that do you know how you become a bestseller in publishing is you sell more books than anybody else in one week yep that's it and you know what makes you a sustainable <laughs> not that author yep is selling lots of books over a long period of time that i think is something that people like in their efforts to become like a bestseller mm -hmm. or like Obviously, anyone who can, who is, where being a bestseller is like in range for you, go get it. But mm -hmm. like that concept, like, well, that's the dream. I just want to be on the bestseller list. Like, it is by nature very flash in the pan, unless you're someone who's going to stay on the list for a very long time, which doesn't happen very much. No. It's, um, it is like, and I, you know, that's the sort of thing that kind of bleeds into, you know, conversations about like pre order campaigns, which we've covered before, but. I just, I just wish, like, just broadly, I just wish that, like, publishing would acknowledge who's 
doing like where the problems are coming from. Consolidation, risk aversion, Amazon, these things that are real things that we can point to and talk about. And it's not anyone's like that's not a divisive conversation, I don't think. Like it's just something like here's one thing I will say about most of my peers in publishing. Anyone who works in these houses who's having these articles, like I think that every single one of these people loves books and wants publishing to work. Mm-hmm. I do. I really do. I think they're all good people. I talk to these people all the time. Like they, it's like, but let's just talk about it. Let's actually talk about the factors that are causing these problems, as opposed to just offering up like helpless pablum. You know, like I don't know. It's just, it's just crazy to me that we can assess the state of the industry in this way and not have anything actually materially substantial <laughs> to say about it, you know? Yeah, this, like, big... The big PW article doesn't list any names. It doesn't list yeah. any bad actors. It doesn't produce any solutions. No, it's it just a naturally occurring thing. It's like, oh, it's windy today. Oh, the mid-list is gone. Turns like, out it's winter in Minnesota, and none of us are prepared for it, <laughs> even though we had all the signs. Let's move on. So this next section, I want yeah. to preface okay. this segment. Okay. Because I'm ready. I'm it's ready. very funny to me how it came about. <laughs> this is something that Laura has been fighting for for a while. And I, we've been going back and forth. I wasn't so sure about it, but we're going to let it rip this time. And we're calling this section <clears throat> Laura's Tinfoil Hat. <laughs> um, and it's because... Um, Laura wanted a proper venue to just do some theorizing, to do some conspiracy mongering. Um, and I think, you know, and basically my job is going to just be here to just say, yep, makes you think. Like, just... Okay. So, so, Laura, please present us the conspiracy theory of the week. Okay. I would like to preface this by saying mm-hmm. that I am not typically a conspiracy theorist. Uh-huh, no one ever is when they present their no. conspiracy theory. They're totally normal people until they get to the... Except... <laughs> For when it comes to Amazon. Uh Uh-huh. Here we go. Okay. This is a parody podcast, and you should not sue us. Um, This is the only thing that I am a conspiracy theorist about, and it feels like I'm going crazy. This must be what it's like in your head all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. Now, hold on a damn minute. What? Like, I was about... So, I I was about to say, like, I I let you keep talking, but I was about to say... Any of the things that I'm a conspiracy theorist about, like, are not within the realm of this show. <laughs> They're probably not within the realm of any other show. I know. But This anyway. is the problem with having a podcast with your best friend, it's is very, that they know some shit. It's very delightful that on this program, you're going to be the conspiracy theorist and not me. It's a nice change um, in my it's, life. It so, feels good, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh, it feels okay. great. Please so continue to deal. be the not normal <clears throat> one. So it was recently reported actually like today or this week, that um, due to congestion at its warehouses, Amazon is cutting book orders to publishers for the holiday season. So there aren't any like specific or public numbers here. Amazon, of course, is not responding to anybody's statements. Um, But there are some particularly like smaller and midsize indie presses that have reported that Amazon's ordering for the upcoming holiday season is like seven, a whole 75% lower than it was last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to me, <laughs> this is gigantic. Like the to me is doing to enormous me, amounts of lifting in whatever's about. To me, <laughs> this points to something that is, like not at all structural, right? Because mm-hmm. people are still going to be giving books for Christmas. Like all yeah. of a sudden between yeah. Christmas of 2018 and Christmas of 2019, like people haven't stopped reading, right? Like all of the numbers that we're seeing are people are reading more. There's more access. There's blah, 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 right? Uh-huh. What this is saying to me, Eric, mm-hmm. is that this is another thing that Amazon is doing to just like stick their big corporate monopoly bit middle finger mm-hmm. to traditional publishing right no okay I, yeah i actually agree with that yeah so. <laughs> so so here's let's let's extrapolate this a little uh-huh, bit please okay actually please so please. if we know that regardless of how bad it is for these companies the bulk of direct sales for books are now like coming from amazon because amazon treats books they're loss leaders for them yeah. right so you can get yeah. them for cheaper than anywhere else and da 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 okay So typically what Amazon does is they order books directly from these, you know, the bigger presses 
um, or the ones that are, you know, distributed through through the big presses. Mm -hmm. And they order the rest of them, you know, through through warehouses or from Ingram, et cetera, et cetera. And they keep them in their warehouses so that when people order via Prime, they can get it in a day or two. The problem with not stocking the number of books that they've typically done means that it is more common for those who are last minute shoppers or those who want free shipping or convenience are going to be seeing these books on Amazon, which typically are the easiest easiest way as a consumer to buy these books. They're going to see them as not available. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that they're probably just going to buy something else from yep. Amazon because they're already there and they've already got their it's shopping online cart shopping. going. Yeah, exactly. Like you're not going to suddenly go to the store. Right. I never leave the house. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so what that means is like just due to warehouse over like overcrowding, Amazon is maybe dealing a 75% blow to all these smaller presses. And mm-hmm. you know what Amazon wants to do? Amazon wants to publish all the books. Amazon yes, wants does. to sell all the books. Amazon yes, wants all the technology. Speak on it. Amazon <laughs> Amazon wants to crush everything. Uh-huh. And so like as a retailer, <clears throat> as a retailer, this is the best way to do it. Like I'm sure that because like if there is a if there is truly a 75% reduction in Amazon sales for the holiday season, which is the busiest quarter for book publishers, if this is like if this is a small house is experiencing this, and they are really, really reliant on that fourth quarter earnings to keep their press going. I bet that it won't be going for very much longer. Yeah. So that is to say they know what the fuck they're doing. Well, I just think, they're I just think evil, it makes you think. And it makes you think. I'm wearing I'm just adding another layer of tinfoil <laughs> to my we're beautiful just, hat. We're just connecting some dots, folks. Eric, did you know that my superhero power, like my, my yeah, superpower. I, I can't wait to hear this. Is that I look good in every hat. Yeah. Like I look phenomenal in every hat. You have told me that hat. before. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that is to say. My superhero power is way stupider than that. What is it? I can count letters. Oh, yeah. You can do that. We're not doing that on the No. Podcast. Well, we'll maybe, that maybe that'll be a Patreon <laughs> thing. I forgot. You're like a little bit like synesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So all I'm saying is that this is both like a powerful and fashionable statement mm-hmm. and um, my big conspiracy theory. Yeah. So, no, I, mean, I, I think that I think it's important to just speak on it. And, and we did. So um, <laughs> <laughs> should we should we do the Tulum? Yes. Let's Please. do a Tulum. <clears throat> so this is a very specific subject, well, so but re- I think it's going to apply to, to larger stuff. Let me read to you because okay. I think that you actually have thoughts and feelings. Like you're the about one it? who's got better thoughts and feelings on this. Okay. So I'm going to read this to you and you can answer. Got it. To Loon, it may concern. You've <clears throat> never read one of these before. It's no, really you, interesting. You usually read. Yeah. Um, but I think today is a good day for you to answer first. Pit Mad is coming up. And that, so that we're getting this a couple months late. Pit Mad is coming up, up in September. Last time I did Pit Mad, I got one like on my pitch tweet, which was great because I'm looking for an agent. However, the like I got was from an editor, not an agent. And the editor was not from a traditional publishing house. Rather, she worked at an audiobook company. P.S. It was Audible Originals, owned by Amazon. Dum, dum, dum. Okay, continue. The editor's stated guidelines were, if I like your tweet, send me your full manuscript. This audiobook company works directly with authors to create audiobooks only. I wasn't comfortable with that, so I didn't send her my manuscript. Was I being foolish? Audiobooks are great, but in my mind, they come after or along with a traditional publishing deal, right? As an agent, would you want your potential author to hold back audio rights until after the traditional deal is done, or doesn't it matter? What are your thoughts, and how would you advise an author to respond to this kind of pit-mad interest? Thanks, and congrats on your award nomination, Looney Pit-Matter. Okay, so before we start, <laughs> we're two months late to this we're two because late we to this. go randomly. This yeah. came um, before the fact that it was no longer an award nomination, folks. Uh, we did win the Woo! award, so just a little correction there um, for your award-winning podcast. But um, Laura, this raises an interesting question to me mm-hmm. because it, to me, this the reason we're kind of even pulling this late is because, and there's there's a bit in the b- back here about Pit Mad that we can talk about too in terms of online contests. Mm-hmm. But but before we get to that, audiobooks as a format, as a right, yep. as a something that 
is really kind of blooming right now. You know what I mean? Like audiobooks are up. It's the like, fastest yeah. growing area <laughs> in publishing and right so now. So speak on that a minute. Like so you have you an author and I think more and more authors are gonna find themselves in this situation, especially as someone like Audible Originals gets more mm-hmm. aggressive in acquisitions. So like what do you think of this? Okay, so let's let's talk for a second, removed from this specific situation, let's talk about audio and what's happening right now in the market. So the technology mm-hmm. is finally caught up so that audio is a valuable commodity. Previously, even as, you know, even as recent as like six, eight years ago, audio was really, really expensive. It was expensive to exploit, it was expensive to produce. You'd have to go to your library and check out like one CD at a time. Um, and it was just, it's difficult. Now you can download like 15, 15 to 20 hour, um, audiobooks onto your phone and through your library and just like send them back. Right. Um, so we're in this point where technology has, has caught up to something that publishing has been wanting to do for a while. So in response to that technology boom and the fact that people are busier and busier and that audio is of course the fastest growing area in publishing right now, um, what that means is that audio has gone from a not super desired subright to a very desired subright slash a primary right. I was going to say, almost a primary format now. Yeah, a primary yep. format. So if, you, if you're not familiar, like a primary format in a book deal is like a hardcover, a softcover, a mass, mass uh, like, a, like a, a trade paper, mm-hmm. like a softcover. Or a mass market paperback, right? And yep. there's a couple of others, you know, like a like large print and blah blah blah. Um, audio. A lot of people, a lot of houses are now requiring audio rights in the deal. Mm-hmm. A lot of houses are exploiting their backlist, or they're looking to buy backlist titles. And so for agents, like this is a really exciting time. Um, this means, you know, there are some agents, and or there's some particular books where the strategy for an agent has been, well, if we can get Blackstone Audio or Audible to be really interested in this book before we sell it to a publisher, it'll make it easier to sell to a publisher. Alternately, um, you know, a lot of a lot of publishers are wanting audio right away and they're like, we're going to release audio and print at the same time. It's Mm going to be great. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think going back to this particular instance. So what would you do? So what I would do is I love, so the big thing that I recommend to any author querying at any point, mm-hmm. whether it's through a contest like PitMad or DV Pit, whether it is through traditional channels, whether it's through just like hobnobbing, is to keep your options open. So what I would have done in this situation, and to be clear, like, you should do whatever you feel comfortable with. Like if you as an author are not comfortable with selling or even considering selling audio first, then don't do it. That is actually that's a really fine. that's actually a really good first point, which yeah. is that in any of these decisions you should do what you're comfortable with. But but what I would have done, and this is coming from, you know, context as as an agent is typically I like to keep my options open. Okay, so what I would have done is I would have, first of all, made sure that your query and that your manuscript was impeccable. Then what I would have done is I would have sent it to this editor at Audible, Mm -hmm. and then I would have sent it to a whole mass of agents. Not like agents that you wouldn't want to work with, but like, you know, your list of agents. I would have sent them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And so then what would happen is if this editor came back and was like, hey, like, I don't want this, then fine. Cool, whatever. It doesn't really, really matter. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if there's a lot of other places to sell audio. So as an agent, if you know that you've gotten one turn down from Audible, like that's okay. The Audible might even come back and be like, just kidding, I want it. If you know your your print book does well. Um, but if the editor comes back and says, Hey, I want to publish this, then what the the response would have been was Thank you so much. I'm super interested. I'm currently in the process of securing a representation. Give me a couple of weeks and I'll get back to you. And then what you can do mm-hmm. is follow up with those agents that you say, even if they haven't responded right, to right, your right. initial exactly. initial query. That's when you can kind of send the update email, which is like, hey, I've got an offer for audio rights. Mm-hmm. And what we're kind of describing here is a situation where since audio is kind of popping off right now, like. It might help drive interest. You know what I mean? Yeah. So an agent might be interested. In general, one thing to kind of point out about this sort of situation is 
The only time a decision needs to get made is if the audible person expresses interest, right? And not so, even expresses interest, but, like, if they give you a contract. Yes. And so, like, for me, hearing this story, my first thought is, well, why not send them the manuscript? Right. Right? Like, there's no downside to sending them the manuscript. Other you know, than them saying no, but that's not even a downside. That's not a downside because you're where you started. And if they say yes, you don't have to agree. You know what I mean? And so it's, to me, this is the sort of thing where um yeah you just push you push on the avenues available to you yeah and then you use those avenues once they've made some progress to kind of leverage the other ones Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and so and speaking as from an agent's perspective like i have a ton of clients from a situation similar to this where they say hey you know, this publisher wants to publish my book or is interested in it or somebody's interested in using me for an IP story. Right. Can you help represent right. me? And, you know, like, and I never say yes unless I really, really want to work with that person and I like their writing and I, you know, and I, I think that we could be a good fit and I could do them good. But it's a perfectly valid way to get where it is that you're going. Yeah. You know, like, the I think the big takeaway here is if you are comfortable with it, don't turn down opportunities because it doesn't follow the path, quote unquote path, that you've been told is the only way to be published. Yep, absolutely. That's it. Like, honestly, that's kind of like, <clears throat> and you talk about PitMad or DVPit or like any of the other Twitter contests. Those contests are another way to circumvent that traditional method. You know, we've got people going audio first. We've got people, you know, we've got people submitting or connecting with editors from publishers who work both at a limited submission period straight from authors and with and with agents. And a, and a good house or a good editor maybe even will recommend somebody mm-hmm. to work with. You know what I mean? So, like, the, the big thing is, is there's a lot of ways to get where you're going. If you feel comfortable, let it ride. So, like, that gets to, like, the, I think, the smaller portion of this question, mm-hmm. this back bit about... Um, about like what to do in pit mat or any of these pitch mm-hmm. um, online pitch contests where like someone you don't you aren't sure about you don't know about faves your pitch and they ask to see your manuscript. Um, the answer with anyone who faves your stuff and you should do this no matter who it is. Um, if you get thirty likes, if you get five likes, if you get two likes, like look into whoever it is. Like really do your research. Yes, and you may find that. Um, it may help assuage your fears. Like, you may find that this person you haven't heard of... Like, remember, you haven't heard of everybody. You know what I mean? So it's like, right. you may find that this person you don't know about is actually quite a legitimate agent or a house or whoever it is. Or a bad fit for you. Or a bad fit for or you. Or so, maybe there's somebody who's named Schmark Schmotley. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> God damn it. Um, so, I have no fear. Um, so... <clears throat> um, do your research. Do your research. And like it's just so that's the matter. Like how would so how would you advise an author to respond to that kind of pit mad interest? It's do your research and make a call. But the answer also is that unless you can think of like you can often use interest mm-hmm. to leverage other situations, right? Yeah. And so like if at some point like don't turn it down just because it's not quite the route you're thinking of, right? Like Laura's point I think there is really good, which is that if an audio only place breaches out. You can use that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if you eventually say no to them. Like, just remember that leverage is leverage, right? Like, interest is interest. Use that as a means of pushing when you can. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, with that, I would like to thank you all for joining us on this rip-roaring episode of Print Run, the award-winning podcast. <laughs> remember to head on over we to... We don't say that enough. We, we don't. We really more. should. Eric Eric has custody of the plaque currently, Don't and talk I about plaque like it's... a child we're bit placky is my friend and he's real <laughs> remember to send us your suggestions for a third special episode any taloon it may concern or your queries or first pages for critique to us you can reach us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you for a regular episode next week bye